You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. I said on Christmas Day, for those of you who are here, that it's worth your time thinking about the mystery of the Incarnation alongside the mystery of the Trinity and the, and the crucifixion of the Lord. Well, <clears throat> at the risk of giving you an ever-growing list, <laughs> I think I want to suggest that you add to that uh, your list of meditatable mysteries, the, thank you, Nick, <laughs> the baptism of the Lord. Um, the question, which you should really have in your minds if you've never thought about it before, is why did Jesus need to be baptised? In fact, why did he insist on being baptised? He did insist, we know from the other Gospels. Um, and that, that question is a fruitful one, and that will give you richer and richer answers the longer you ponder it. And I don't just mean over weeks or just here and there, but over the rest of your life, the more you think about it, genuinely, it will bear fruit in your life as you think about it. That's the way mysteries work. They're fruitful. And they're not just meant to be not understood. They're meant to be explored and to bear fruit in your lives. So why did Jesus need to be baptized? He was, of course, sinless, so he didn't need to repent. He didn't need to wash away his sins. And yet he insisted with John. One of my favourite answers to that question, one that you'll find again and again in the Church Fathers, is that by being baptised, Jesus sanctified the waters. So it wasn't that he needed washing, it was the waters that needed washing, (laughs) if you like, and that Jesus sanctified the waters. And in doing so, um, he enabled us to be baptised, effectively, powerfully into him. I I love that. I I love the way the the minds of the Church Fathers work and the way they, they, they see things. I'm not sure I'd have ever thought of that on my own. It's true that Christians, uh, almost all Christians, have believed the waters of baptism are in some way imbued with a power that comes from Christ. That baptism isn't just a sign, isn't just something that we do, it's not just a memorial um, to show uh, we've been chosen by God or that we've chosen him, but actually baptism is something God does to us through Christ. So we're going to get into stuff that's kind of related to baptism, but it's more about what it means to be a Christian, what baptism represents. But I want to give you kind of like, you know when you go to the doctor and they give you a little injection, and like, this is going to hurt a little bit. It's going to be over before you know it. I just want to give you a tiny little bit of teaching, <laughs> like a little injection, an inoculation right at the beginning. It's just like 300 words, and then your brains will hurt a little bit, and it'll be, it'll be gone, all right? <laughs> but I, but I, I, don't, I don't get to, you know, I, I don't want... All, the whole of the sermon to be teaching, 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 and it's going to make your brain hurt. You know, I want the Lord to speak to us today, but you don't get to teach on things like baptism very often. So I just want to say something really quick. Is that okay? Thank you very much for your permission. Uh, uh, It's worth saying then that the Christian church, both before the Reformation and afterwards, has by and large seen baptism not just as a sign, but a sacrament. That is something that, it it is a sign, but it also does what it signifies. So that's, that's really important. And I just want to tell you, that is what I will teach consistently from this pulpit. Now, we're not dogmatic about that as a church. We didn't require you to agree with me on that point, but I will teach that. And I'd advise you to, to think along those lines, because I think that's what Christians have always believed. Um, baptism is a really a vital part of our salvation. The entry point into faith in Christ is baptism. It's necessary. It's effective. It's commanded for every believer by Christ. Um, the church is, uh, throughout the, the world, throughout the centuries, has also always believed that 
our salvation isn't dependent upon baptism in the sense, you know, the thief on the cross was promised by Jesus that he would go to heaven. He wasn't baptized. So we know that God's grace can spill over beyond the, the, his ordained means of grace. We know that. Christians have also always believed that not everyone who is baptized in the end is actually saved. That's proved by Simon Magus, for example. Uh, he was baptized and then commits the sin of simony. And it's revealed by the Lord's own warnings, of course, about those who claim Lord, Lord, but who he never knew. But nevertheless, despite those caveats, the Westminster Confession, really solid reformed confession that we tend to follow, says, for the solemn admission of the party baptized, its baptism is for the solemn admission of the party baptized, that's you if you're a Christian, (laughs) into the visible church, and also a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his or her engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of their giving up unto God through Jesus to walk in newness of life. And it says this, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit through baptism. So that's that's it. Is that okay? Brain's hurting a little bit, sore arm. <laughs> What's the upshot of that? I just want to say that you know, for, for us as a church, what I'd love us to, to practice and teach is that baptism isn't just something that follows after someone's been a Christian for a while and we can take them seriously and we think, oh yeah, they really are a Christian. But actually, what the church has done for most of history in most places is that baptism is offered to those who want to choose Christ. At that moment of like, I, I want to receive him. It's, it's the kind of decisive act of repentance that brings us into full communion with Christ and with his church. That's, uh, that's it. Okay. Good, thanks. <laughs> Maybe it's slightly more than 300 words, but anyway. Yeah, you, you get a sticker for being brave, yeah. <laughs> okay, back to today's scripture. So as I was saying, there's so much going on in the baptism of Christ. There's so much imagery there to, to meditate on. You know, in, in all four Gospels, this picture of Christ in the waters, uh, it fulfills prophecy and it, it marks the beginning of the messianic age. That's, that's the kind of primary picture here. The, uh, the Jewish prophets had spoken of a day when God would rend the heavens and come down. This is what's happening, right? The heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit comes down. And uh, from that moment, uh, God would begin to, uh, the, the gospel, the, the good news of the living God would begin to spread out from the nation of Israel to the rest of the world. God would begin to establish justice and the worship of the living God throughout the whole world. So that, that's the kind of big thing that's going on here. The beginning of Jesus' ministry is the beginning of this messianic age. That would have been certainly in the minds of, of the people there, certainly in the minds of, of uh, Luke as he writes this. It was in the minds of people uh, hundreds of years leading up to Christ. There was um, one Jewish writer about 280 years before wrote this about the Messiah, the age of the Messiah. The heavens will be opened and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him with the father's voice as from our father Abraham to Isaac and the glory of the most high will be spoken over him and the spirit of understanding and holiness will rest upon him in the water. That's not in scripture. That's the Testament of Levi, but... Nevertheless, it shows you the kind of expectation. And you can see, if that was around, you know, they were, he was getting that imagery from somewhere, right? He was getting imagery from this expectation. You can see how this is a perfect fulfillment. And then, so, we've got these specific hopes about the beginning of the Messianic, Messianic age, and there's all sorts of other things going on. We've heard that psalm that Hannah read for us this morning, the voice of the Lord, 
over the waters. We've got the spirit brooding over the water like in Genesis. We've got kind of imagery about Noah and the flood. We've got the passing of the Red Sea with God going first ahead of the people. That's what Jesus is doing, baptism here. All sorts of things going on in all four Gospels. Luke is concerned with establishing Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He's confirming that Jesus is the one promised to Mary in chapter 1. And on top of that, Luke's account of the baptism of the Lord, which is in all four Gospels, Luke's account differs in emphasis in a few ways. We're going to look at one of those ways, but I'm just going to point them out to you so you can navigate your way around the text when you come to it. Firstly, there's interesting, there's no explicit mention of John baptizing Jesus. Verse 21, Jesus is baptized, it's passive, there's no one in... I mean, he's not saying that John didn't do it, but he's like a film director, he's... He wants you to focus on the person of Jesus, not the contrast, if you like. Secondly, Luke mentions Jesus praying after his baptism, and the Holy Spirit comes down while he's praying. For Luke, that's a really big thing. Big things happen in God's kingdom when people are praying together. You can take that as an application, it's just a throw-in. But <laughs> big things happen when we pray. The third thing, and the one that forms the foundation for what I believe God wants to say to us this morning, is that Luke wants us to see Jesus sharing baptism with all the other people. That's verse 21. He's painting a picture of us. Like I said, he's like a film director. He wants you to see Jesus in the water with all the people getting baptized. And he's, he's referring here, first of all, to the people of Israel, of course. But really, Luke with his global scope. Remember we talked about that um, before Christmas. His global vision, his vision of the whole of humanity. He's conjuring up in our minds a picture of the church. We are baptized into Christ and we share this, this baptism with him. When we are baptized, when we become Christians, Lucas is saying to us, it shows what's happening is that we begin to share in Jesus' life. What happens to him happens to us. What happens to Jesus at his baptism happens to us. We're sharing in his life. And this passage really helps to make that clear to us in specific ways. The baptism of the Lord is the first time in Scripture where we clearly see the Trinity revealed. We could preach like a whole other set of sermons on that. The first Trinitarian theophany. The Father speaking, the Son in the water, hearing the, the Father's voice, the Spirit descending and resting on him like a dove. Well, What I want to share with you this morning, what I believe God wants to remind us of and teach us this morning, is that what happens to Jesus at his baptism happens to us. This Trinitarian shape of his life becomes ours. To share in the life of Jesus means to experience the life of the Trinity. So we're going to look at three ways, not because three-point sermons are good, but because we're talking about the holy triune God, the experience of God as the Son of God that he shares with us. Okay, so there are three points, and I've sneaked one or two in before. I that's okay. <laughs> okay, so firstly then, what does it mean to share in the life of Jesus? Well, when we're baptized, firstly it means we are, we are united to the Son of God. To be a Christian means to be united to Christ. It means to be like a marriage. That's the imagery. So united, I don't want you to think of some weak or kind of secular definition of united with Christ. It means to be like a marriage, to become one with him 
in that very real sense that marriage implies and that God has in himself in the Trinity, and analogically similar to that. So we see that in this passage, in the language of John the Baptist. We know John speaks in the other Gospels, in John, uh, John's Gospel, he speaks about Jesus being the bridegroom and that sort of thing. That's missing from here. But that reference to Jesus being the bridegroom and us being the bride is still in John's language, kind of hidden away a little bit. I'm not going to go into loads of details of this. You can look it up in your Bible study if you're in a home group. But when Jesus says, uh, when John says this, this strange saying, it's repeated quite a few times in scripture, even in Acts it's repeated. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of the sandal of the one who comes after me. That is a reference to marriage. It's a reference to lever at marriage. Um, you can read all about that in Deuteronomy 25 and the book of Ruth chapter 4. But in brief, what John is saying is that if he were to take off Jesus' sandal, it'd be like him trying to be the bridegroom. That's what he's saying. It'd be like him trying to take Jesus' place as the bridegroom. And he's saying, I'm not here to do that. Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm just the one who comes before and prepares the way, like the best man. So here's the first point then. Jesus came to be united with a bride, with a church. He washes himself in the water, just like a bridegroom would before his wedding. And the bride, the church, washes herself in the, in the ritual bath as well just as a bride would before the wedding. That's the symbolism of baptism here. To be a Christian means to be united with Christ, to become one with him. Now at this point, I'm expecting some of the men to get a bit uncomfortable, <laughs> because that imagery of marriage is like, you know, what's going on here? How does that apply to us? You know, it may come a little more easily if you're a woman. But actually, it's so important for us to grasp that union means that we share in all the Son has, all that the Son experiences, we experience. The life of the Son becomes ours when we become Christians. Does that make sense? Is that an entirely new thought? The uh, famous theologian John Owen said this, Union with Christ is the cause of all other graces that we are made partakers of. They are all communicated to us by virtue of our union with Christ. Hence is our adoption, our justification, our sanctification, our fruitfulness, our perseverance, our resurrection, our glory. All come from union with Christ. Uh, the Puritans who loved to work things out theologically and explain it in minute detail, they had this thing called the Ordo Salutis. I can tell you're really riveted at this point. You can bear with me. I mean, it's interesting to me. One or two of you might find this interesting. <laughs> More, the more poetic among called it the golden chain, the golden chain of salvation. But it's this idea that there was ideas within salvation. One thing followed another. And in the Ordo Salutis, the first thing came was the gift of faith given to us by God. And the thing that immediately follows the gift of faith is union with Christ. And then from that, all the other benefits kind of hang like a, like a chain, one upon the other, through this union with Christ. What, what does that conjure up in our minds? Well, I think... It helps us to see then what, what does it mean to be a Christian is to be one with Christ. And I think that changes the, the, it helps us to understand the whole way we should look at what it means to be a Christian in our day-to-day experience. I mean, firstly, it shows us the, the constancy, the commitment, the, the, the care of Jesus to us. Like a, like the husband that Paul describes in Ephesians 5, he cares for you if you're a Christian constantly. That's like you're his own body. He loves you like that. He serves you. 
He, he sanctifies you by the washing of the word. You know, a relationship with, with God through Christ is not something you dip in and out of. It's not that you're not getting in the water and getting out again. You are in it like a marriage. It's not something you, you come and go to. It's not, it's not a pen pal relationship. It's not passing acquaintances. The Lord Jesus, if you're a Christian, he is always thinking of you. Always working for your sanctification to make you more like, more like him. Always caring for you. Always doing the best for you. With tenderness and with grace. And that changes. That understanding of that constant communion helps us to understand different aspects of the Christian life. You know, when you pray to the Father, you pray with Jesus. You know, you say, I don't know how often you say the Lord's Prayer. But you know, every time you say the Lord's Prayer and you say, Our Father, you're probably used to thinking about the R means me and the church and Jesus. You know, I don't know if you ever picture this. When you're praying to God and you're asking for something, it, just to imagine Jesus praying with you, saying Amen to your prayers. We, we think of, we, we're used to the imagery of Jesus interceding for us with the Father. But, and it's a beautiful image as far as it goes. But the problem with that is it's kind of distance, right? There's the heavenly temple and Jesus is there. And I'm down here and I pray my prayers and they sort of up into And then Jesus hears and he's like, okay, I understand. I'll let the Father know. There's this distance, right? But actually think of it more like this. When Jesus intercedes with the Father for you, he's next to you. You know, you've got your eyes closed. He's got his eyes closed. You've got your hands together like a child. He's got his hands together. And he's amening and he's he's... Praying with you, and he's adding his own words to what you're praying for. We pray to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. That's the basis of that promise. It changes the way we see worship. I was just listening to something the other day, and this chap said, you know, when we come and worship God on a Sunday morning, we're joining in with the Son's worship of the Father. And there's like a light pulse. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful picture? That actually what we're doing here is it's not just to, to come and meet with Christ. We talk about the Lord being among us when we worship together, but actually he is worshipping the Father and we are joining in with him alongside him. It helps us to understand you know, our ethical decisions. You know, I don't know if you uh, remember Paul's kind of, uh, the Apostle Paul's outrage in 1 Corinthians um, when he finds out that some of the members of the Corinthian church have been visiting prostitutes. And he writes to them, he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? He has this, that's what he's basing that ethical teaching on. He's saying you're one with Christ. And when you go and do something that is so clearly against God's law, is so clearly damaging to yourself, you're, you're implicating the Lord Jesus with you. You're taking him with you because you're one with him. That's really, really serious. I mean, you may not, you know, that may not be your particular issue. I hope, hope not. <laughs> but in all the ethical choices that, that's what's behind what we should do, you know, we live in a, a culture that has a kind of radical individualism and sees our bodies and our, even our, our morality as a kind of self-expression, I believe in this and I believe in that and I can do whatever I like with our bodies but actually if you're a Christian your body is not your own to do what you like with it belongs to the one you are united to to Christ so it's not this infinite canvas for you to you know, to do whatever you want with. Actually, it belongs to him. Powerfully, uh, positively, 
it affects our ethical choices, of course, because it means that if we're united with Christ, then we're able to not just avoid sin or not just do, not just not do things, but also means that we are able to do things that Jesus did. His power is at work in you to enable you to love as he loved, to enable you to work in the power of the Spirit as he worked in the power of the Spirit, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. Peter, when he, um, beginning of Acts, and he sees this chap at the steps of the temple begging, and he says, gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. He's not going to Jesus, taking something, and going, I'm giving to you. He says, what I already have I give to you. Out of his union with Christ, which he understands, he's able to, to speak powerfully into this man's life and see this miracle performed. And, and the big picture is this. It's a, it should change the way we approach our Christian life. As we're united with Jesus, the Lord's mind becomes our mind. We begin to think like him. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Matt read, didn't he? His mind becomes our mind. His experience of being a human being becomes our experience. His perception becomes ours. His joy becomes ours. His passion becomes ours. His loves become ours. His hates become our own. His life flows into us. So there's the first thing. The baptism unites us with Christ. Makes us one with him. Okay, secondly then. Since we baptism causes us to be adopted by the Father, since we share in all of Christ's blessings by our union, we also become sons of God. I heard a story recently about this um, uh, young black uh, teenager from South London, a guy called Reggie Nelson. Some of you may be familiar with the story. A council estate kid, and he was looking at what he was going to do with his life. I think he was looking at his A-levels, and he just felt kind of stuck. Like he thought, he, you know, it doesn't matter how hard I try, whatever I do, I'm not going to be able to make anything of my life. And so he decided to do something radical. He decided he would go to the poshest part of London and knock on the doors of the nicest houses he could find and ask the people that lived there, what did you do to become so rich? <laughs> something like that. He probably put it more politely than that. <laughs> So he went to the, the nicest street somewhere in Chelsea or Knightsbridge, somewhere like that. Anyway, some, somewhere really posh. And uh, one of those houses, I don't know if you go to London, you see the ones with the pillars out the front and the big steps and everything. And the second house, he, he, the doorbell he rung on, the lady came to the door, he explained what he was doing, and she invited him in. <laughs> Her husband was a guy called, I've forgotten to write it down, that's a shame. Something like Percy or something like that, you know, something posh. <laughs> he was the fund manager for a company called BlackRock managing a fund of something, some ridiculous amount, like £944 billion, pounds or something. I don't know. That sounds crazy, but I think it was a huge amount. And basically, they just decided to mentor this young kid. And they paid for him to have a great education, and then they gave him an internship, and now he works for, I think he works for BlackRock. And he's got this, this life that he wanted. I mean, it's just such a lovely story, isn't it? Um, he took the initiative. God bless it. I, you know, it's not a faith story, but... Is it... What a wonderful thing to be kind of taken under the wing of a family like that with money and resources and so on. Well, you know where I'm going with this, right? I mean, that's great. That's like some movie you're going to see. But we have something even better. Jesus is the only begotten, eternal son of the Father. But because we are united with him, we are adopted as sons. Not just mentored, (laughs) 
We are adopted as sons and we share in all his riches. The waters of baptism represent then, in another sense, the waters of birth. Through them we come into that inheritance. You know, we could, again, preach a sermon series on the benefits of adoption by the Father. There's just one thing I want to focus on today. What we're saying is the things that happen to Jesus in the water happen to us. And that means when God the Father speaks from heaven and says, you are my son, with you I am well pleased, he speaks that to whoever is in Christ. If you're a Christian, God's words to you are, you are my child, with you I am well pleased. And he means them. He means them. Think of the grace of God. The forgiveness we have. The gift of his son. Wash, of our, wash us of our sins. What do we do to earn that? What do we do to earn Jesus' death? Nothing. We weren't even as bold as Reggie Nelson, were we? We weren't going out knocking on doors. We were completely oblivious. And God broke into our lives and adopted us and gives us the inheritance of Christ. All the joy, the fullness of the Son in heaven is given to us. We, we talk about being robed in the righteousness of Christ. That when God looks on, on us, all our sin and our shame is covered by the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at us, that's what he sees. And I think that's a wonderful picture. And I think it's important that we understand that picture correctly. Because I, I feel like God would tell you this morning that he is not kidding himself about you. And there's one way of understanding that picture where we're covered in the righteousness of Christ and it's like we're hidden so God can't really tell how bad we are. You know? You understand what I'm saying? That we're hidden in Christ and God can't really tell how bad we are and somehow we sneak into heaven. <laughs> we sneak into, God, into the Lord's affections. God is not tricking himself into loving us by adopting us as his sons. You know, if, if we think that God... Loves us, but he's kind of tricking himself. Actually, the problem with that is that we'll never really feel secure in our relationship with him. We'll never really feel secure in our relationship with him. So, what I, I want to say this morning is when Jesus, when God, the Father says to Jesus, You're my son, and I'm pleased with you, and he says that to you, when he says that he loves you in Christ, it means something specific. He loves us like a father loves his child. God loves you like a father loves their child. He loves you because of who you will one day be. All the potential that's inside you. Do you know there is a Christ-like version of you out there in eternity waiting to be fulfilled in Christ. So he, he, he loves you not because he's tricking himself, but because one day you will be just like Jesus and you will be fully yourself. I remember hearing someone say once that um, you know, heaven is... Everyone in heaven is eccentric. <laughs> I, re- I love that idea. That everyone in heaven is eccentric. Not hard to get on with or whatever. But that we'll be all so completely ourselves. We'll not be like anybody else. We'll be completely like Jesus. And completely not like anybody else. And each person will reflect God's glory. Uh, fully and freely and wonderfully. And when God looks at you in Christ. When he says that you're robed in his righteousness. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying I see the finished product. And it is wonderful. 
It's glorious. It fills him with joy. And if you could see it, you would be filled with joy and hope as well. He wants you to hear those words afresh. For you. To believe that that's true. To live your life working towards that reality. You know, even more than that though, he doesn't just love you for your potential, for who you'll one day be. He even loves you now. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to minimize the seriousness of sin, that God somehow isn't displeased when we disobey him, doesn't treat our sin with holiness and righteousness. I'm not saying that at all, but there is a, an acceptance of us that is analogous, just like the way we treat our children when we're parents. There is an acceptance of our immaturity and our weakness that is not just tapping of the foot thinking, when are they going to grow up? But it's actually a genuine delight that we're not there yet. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but I think God gave us family so that we can know it was true. You know, I'm not exasperated with Charlotte because she can't enunciate her consonants correctly. I'm not upset with Neve because she's not earning money yet and paying her way. I love them in their childishness. I, I, I'm not impatient. Oh, come on, how long is this going to take? I love them right now. You know, I, what people say when they've had lived busy lives and they've been incredibly successful and sort of thing, and, and, and right at the end someone says to them, you know, what's your one regret in life? And they'll say, what? That I didn't spend more time with my children when they were growing up. God loves spending time with his children when they're growing up. That is just mind-blowing. He's not kidding himself about you. He likes you now. He likes you who, for who you're going to be. He loves you now. He loves you in your weaknesses and your imperfection. He delights in you even. That's so important for grace. How we understand our acceptance. That I'm accepted even now. It's so important for how we accept one another. You think of those guys who go around metal detectors and they find a, a treasure buried in a field, don't they? They dig it out and they show you the photo, the kind of before and after. Like, this is what it looked like. When you're like, I'm surprised the metal detector even found it. It's just like a, a lump of muck. But you can see the outlines of the treasure. And then they'll show you afterwards once the British Museum has bought it off them or something. And there's this beautiful I don't know, necklace or tiara or something that's been buried in the ground for hundreds of years. Like a buried treasure, even our sins and our weaknesses, our foibles, they display the outlines of who you're going to be one day. They do. You know that thing that um, Giancarlo called the yuck factor the other week? (laughs) When you see another person, they're different to you, like, your instinct director is, (laughs) you know, that thing that makes them different to you. It may actually be offensive right now, to be honest with you, because we're all full of sin and so on. But it may actually reveal something about their character and their strength. That, you know, that impatience reveals a holy boldness, you know? But is it something like that? You can see the shape of what's underneath. So God gives us that information so that we can understand our sin. So when, when we sin, we don't say, oh, I'm such a hopeless failure. Why is that? God is saying, you've sinned, you've disobeyed me, or you've failed in some weakness or so on. But I want you to know that even in your sin, there is something I'm going to redeem and make wonderfully holy. He wants to give you hope in the midst of that. And, and for fellowship, you know, we're talking the other week about like uh, seeing Christians and delighting in them and leaping with joy and that sort of thing. You know, when we look at each other, the same thing, he wants to fill you with that hope about 
your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you see that thing that offends you, to actually, instead of being like, to, to write them off and think, how do I even do that? But to actually look, what is the thing behind that that God delights in? What is the Christ-robed version, the treasure-polished version of, of, of what's causing that thing? So that we can genuinely love one another, accept one another as Christ has accepted us. So hear his voice this morning. I want to encourage you when, you know, when we respond in worship and we come to communion. Let God speak to you afresh. Let him minister to you. If you, if you struggle to hear that voice, you're my child, you're my son, with whom I'm well pleased. Ask him to open your ears for yourself. Ask him to open your ears for the people around you. So you can have that wonderful freedom that comes with knowing the Father loves you. And he loves your brothers and sisters too. Is that okay? Okay. Thirdly then, we're filled with the Spirit when we come to, when we're baptized. Baptism draws us into the life of the Christ, into the life of Christ, unites us with him. Uh, We're adopted as uh, sons by the Father and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So just as the Spirit descends, upon Jesus in the form of a dove and rests upon him at his baptism, we get that too. I just Isn't that wonderful? I haven't even told you what it means yet, but it's wonderful. <laughs> I'm not sure I can tell you what it means. Isn't the Holy Spirit a wonderful mystery? He's so amazing. We know he's good. We love his nearness and the way he blesses us. Uh, we call him Lord and giver of life, you know, so, and it's so hard to sort of, you know, point one, the Holy Spirit does it. It's, it's very hard to do that. But there's something about that God wants us to understand in this picture. You know, the relationship between the Son and the Father is not just the Father saying, I love you, and the Son saying, I hear you and I love you too. But there's a fullness in that exchange. It's so full, it's, it's eternally poured forth in the person of the Holy Spirit. There's this experience that fulfills that exchange of love, that makes it a a full of life thing. We can call that grace, we can call it eternal life, we can call it the life of the Spirit. But there's this thing that's going on, mutual delight, that gives us joy and all sorts of things. But what does that mean in terms of our experience? This passage, and again, I think God wants to speak to us about a specific aspect of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. This fact that the Spirit chose to be seen in the form of a dove. He was not actually a dove, so he must have chosen to, to be seen that way. It helps us to understand. It's pointing us back to Noah and the flood. The dove represents the peace of God that follows the judgment of the flood. Remember Noah, the last time he sent out a bird, he sent out a dove, and it went missing. Here it is. Because the dove was able to rest. <laughs> Not really. Sorry. <laughs> the, the dove went missing because it was able to rest upon the purified land. It found a place to nest, you know. It was able to rest there. It followed this overwhelming destruction. And that helps us to understand part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit like Jesus. We begin to experience the peace of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had as a man, that filled his life. You know, in, uh, in India, 
Uh, we've been to Gilgal a few times, and I've had the pleasure of baptising people out there. And one of the things I hadn't expected was when we were baptising some of the women, they were really, really scared about getting baptised. They were almost like panicky, like really nervous. And I don't know whether it's because I'm enormous, or because I'm European, or because of modesty or something, then, you know, not that close to being, you know, not that used to being close to someone or whatever. But there was a kind of panic and a kind of fear about being on water. Water can do that to you, can't it? It can make you feel a kind of like, oh, I'm going to, I don't know if, you know, if any of you had that, like if you put your head under water, it can kind of make you feel a kind of panicky. You know, without Christ, that panicky feeling in some form or another is, is our inheritance in Adam. You know, Adam hiding from God in the garden. Oh, I was scared because I was naked and, you know, that, that's it, isn't it? But God is maybe against us. That's what people fear, even though they may not even believe in God. But deep down, there's this fear that the universe or something out there is, you know, not for them. They don't know about their Father in heaven. When they think about morality or they dare to think about God, all they can picture is, you know, judgment, the flaming sword outside Eden Garden where you cannot come in, the the fiery mountain, you know, the thunder and lightning you cannot approach and touch. And when they face life's ups and downs, the providences of life and things coming their way, it's a kind of confused, kind of panicky, kind of drowning, kind of judgment that people experience because they don't know the Father. They don't have the cleansing power of Christ in their lives. Like being out of control. But when we come to Jesus, when we're baptized into him, when we hear, when we're united with him, when we hear the voice of the Father, Holy Spirit fills us with the opposite of that. He changes the way we experience those things, cleansed of our guilt. You know, the fiery sword of Eden is open. (laughs) The fire of God's holiness is revealed as the passion of his love for us. His law is no longer giving death, but life. And his providences, the things that we face in life, the things that seem to happen to us by chance, the experiences of every day, we seem like a flood that's threatened to wash us away, suddenly become filled with the peace of God. We know that no matter what happens, what comes our way, nothing shall separate us from him. Think about Jesus' experience as a man when he faced opposition. Was he, oh, why is this happening? No. When John the Baptist was arrested and killed, you know, he, he felt the, the, the sadness of a human being. It wasn't that he was above it. Was he panicking that God wasn't in control anymore? Was he anxious about the future? No. He was filled with peace. When crowds gathered around him, when people were hungry and there was no food to feed him, was he, was he panicked? Was he worried? No. When he was arrested, did he doubt that the Father was in charge? Did he doubt the Father's love? No. When Peter betrayed him, even in the midst of his passion, even in the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Do you think God, do you think the Son of God doubted that the Father loved him? No, because he had the fullness of the Spirit dwelling in in him at all times. Those words of Romans 8, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, were his lived experience every moment of every day. And that is your inheritance in Christ. When Paul says, let the peace of Christ dwell among you richly, that's what he's talking about. All the other things that the Holy Spirit gives us flow out of this. 
the gift of the Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom, and of counsel, and of might, and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge and fear, and the, the, the uh, charismatic gifts, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all those things, all of those flow from the shalom of God, the peace of God. It comes from experiencing that, that fullness. That's what Jesus gives us in our baptism. It's his way of, he gives us his way of seeing everything. Gradually, gradually we grow into it. We come to believe that it's true. God is for you. He's not against you. Nothing can happen that will separate you from him. Through all things, he draws you deeper into the knowledge of his love. That's, I think this just helps to make concrete part of what we should expect to happen in our lives as Christians. You know, that more and more we hear those words and we believe them. My son, I love you. My child, I'm pleased with you. We experience that peace. So Jesus was immersed in the water of sin so we could be immersed in the Spirit. He's baptized into our flesh that we might, and lived our life that we might live his life. So let me challenge you this, and we'll finish with this. Look at your life. Where are the strongholds of panic, of doubt that says, oh, what's going on here? Where is there not peace? Where are you not able to trust God and his purposes for you? In your fear of what other thing, other people think of you, or in your worry about life, or your worries for yourself or the people you love, maybe in your inability to rest. You know, are there places where you need the Holy Spirit to descend like a dove and bring that assurance? The judgment has passed. Peace is here, and fruitfulness will follow. I believe that God would remind us and minister to us in that truth this morning. You know, his wonderful destiny for us is that we will see one day that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Not just one moment in time where the Spirit descends, but the whole earth, all things that exist and all things that happen, praise God the Father through the Son in the glory of the Spirit. The glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And one day it is your destiny. I promise you, if you are baptized into Christ, you will see him face to face. As the, and as the Son sees the Father, and we will know without restraint, or without qualification, or without condition, the joy and the wonder of being his sons. Amen. Let's pray.